I'm Stephen Gregory Smith. And I'm Matt Connor. Gather around the campfire, everyone. It's time for... The Connor and Smith Show. Tell us a story. Well, we're going to talk to another storyteller tonight. Craig Spector, the author. Um, He uh, wrote many bestsellers, uh, New York Times bestsellers, including The Light at the End. Um, He started out in New York City as a... uh, what do you call it, roller skate uh, street messenger. Um, There's a great story about how he got his first, he and John Skip's first uh, manuscript, I guess you call it, into an agent to be read. Mm -hmm. Um, He wrote many books, including one of my personal favorites, uh, The Bridge, Um, also Animals. I'm reading one now that is called Underground that he wrote by himself. Uh, it's very prolific. Uh, he also is working on music now. Um, he is a uh, cancer survivor. Um, and the music albums basically have denoted every year that he has beat the disease. Uh, it's this is We have to do two parts to this interview, so this is part one. Um, anything I'm leaving out? Nope, it's, gonna, it's a great, great um, listen. And if you want to put on some of his music, uh, you can look up craigspectormusic.com. We'll put that in the description, but we're going to take a break, then we'll be right back. From award-winning journalist and author, Michael Lee Pope, The Ghosts of Alexandria, his spellbinding book tells of historical intrigue, the brutal beginnings of a port city, romances that end in tragedy, restless spirits like the tomb of the female stranger who's said to haunt Gadsby's tavern, and the three falling ghosts of the Carlisle House. Explore the supernatural journey of the ghosts of Alexandria, available at ArcadiaPublishing.com. From Dathan Auerbach, author of Pen Pal, comes the chilling horror novel, Bad Man. Booklist raves, it's magnificent. The Shining, set in a grocery store. The Washington Post calls it atmospheric and unsettling, takes on an aura of almost gothic menace. And USA Today says it's wickedly effective and saves its darkest deeds for an unnerving end. Bad Man, by Dathan Auerbach. Available at 1000vultures.com. Hello. Hi there, Craig. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good, good. I'm sitting here with my husband, Matt. Hi, Craig. Hello. I'm the husband. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Craig, welcome. Um, uh, I, I was very uh, honored that you got back to me. Uh, I'm a longtime fan of your writing. Um, I, it's interesting because the suggested for you section of Amazon gets very uh, kind of right on the nose sometimes. It's a little scary. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I, I was, don't know about that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. So I'll <laughs> well, take your word for it. Well, I, I saw the the um, the book uh, Underground was suggested for me and I saw your name. 
Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, my God. Yes, I have to get that. Uh, and I'm, I'm in the process of reading that now and extremely enjoying it. But I remember uh, when I was younger, the, the bridge came out and I just saw that cover. I'm looking at I still have my edition from like 1991. Um, oh, my God. It's a, a hand reaching out of like the vines that are coming at each side with the bridge in the background. Oh yeah, it's a uh, and I've seen several cover covers, but this is of course my favorite. Um, and I remember being so obsessed with this book, uh, and it was also innovative in the way that in the back it told you because that you know the the general spoiler alert. It's been a long time, but in case anyone wants to read it, stop right now, then come back. But the the big thing was uh, environmental damage that was, you know things were uh, a lot harder to get people to do back then because there wasn't an internet and, you know, people really, as much as people still don't believe in the things that they should, uh, it was really Earth Day had started, things like that. And there's uh, an appendix that has basically uh, how to fight back, how to um, reduce your, your imprint of junk and trash, how to recycle all this kinds of stuff that I thought was so inspirational, other organizations to write to. I mean, I've never seen something like this in the back of a book. Um, yeah. And then you are, uh, you offered a soundtrack for the music for the movie in your mind. Um, yeah. And it was just, just so interesting um, to, and I've, I've reread the book probably three times since the original read and still holds up, still is incredibly um, graphic in its details. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little extreme. <laughs> and I've often thought to myself, why has no one ever made a film of this? And then I thought to myself, well, you could now, but for many years, the effects and things that you describe in your writing, I can't imagine them trying to do and it not looking like crap back in the day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, the, I, th I think we're in the, uh, the 21st century we are, we are in such a golden age of image manipulation on screen. Yeah. I'm thinking that, of like the amalgamations of people and chemicals and things that kind of uh, morph and just how terrifying they're described. But Let's let's go back before that's that's just I wanted to get that out of the way to say that's where I first read um, your work and turned into a huge fan. Um, and, and now you're writing music as well. You are always did. But now your music is kind of taking the forefront. And we want to talk about that uh, as well. But let's let's start back in the beginning here. So you graduated in 82. Yeah. From Berkeley College of Music. Yep. Um, and then went to the Atlanta College of Art. No, actually, I went to the Atlanta College of Art first. See, this is why um, you should never trust internet biographies. <laughs> yeah, um, I went recommendations from Amazon. Yes, do trust those. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I went to the I went to the Atlanta College of Art for one year, um, because I I I did all these different things, but then I thought, well, I started in art. So I guess I'll try art first. Right. And I did one art, one year at the Atlanta College of Art in, um, in Atlanta, and that pretty much convinced me I don't want to be a professional artist. Right. 
Um, it may have been the wrong school for me uh, because I was kind of a cartoonist and graphic artist going to a fine art school. And um, it was not really what I'd consider a good fit. Right. Uh, in retrospect, but I, I really went down there because I had heard Atlanta was a cool place to be. And I thought, oh, what the hell, let's try this. You know, and uh, it was an interesting year, but it really just made me realize, nah, I'm not going to do this. Right. But then um, how soon after that did you move to New York? Uh, oh, it was a while because then I was going to, I was actually going to be, I, ha I had this plan in my head um, uh, with my then girlfriend uh, who I was living with that uh, we were starting to, um, you know, hang out at these sort of arts festivals and things. And I had uh, befriended some artists and I would bring down my, my little portable amp and my acoustic guitar and I'd set up and start busking by the art exhibit. Uh, and I thought, I could do this. I could, we could travel the country and just follow the art circuit. And I could uh, play music and follow the art circuit. And we were just thinking about sort of being gypsies. You know, this was like 1979, you know, 1978. So that didn't seem such a completely whacked out idea. And um, so thought about doing that. But then we came back up to York, Pennsylvania, which is where I had gone to high school and had a lot of friends and everything. Stopped there ostensibly for a couple of weeks and ended up being there for another year and a half, two years and, wow. you know, recorded a demo music demo and then ended up getting a variety of weird blue collar jobs. Um, and eventually that got me to the point of like, uh, going finally getting my shit together and applying to the Berkeley college of music, got it. Uh, which was interesting because I had, I was completely self-taught and I had no formal training uh, when I applied to Berkeley. And they actually, that was one of the things that, uh, that they actually kind of tried to talk me out of it. They called me, I was, I was getting impatient because I hadn't heard back from them. And I was like, well, you know what? Uh, we're just going to go to Boston and I'm going to say, what's going on guys. And so we were loading up the car to make the drive to Boston. And all of a sudden the phone rang and it was the Berkeley admissions department. And they're like, you know, starting to talk to me. And I'm like, okay, uh, I'm, I'm actually on my way there. You know, uh, I, I have one question. Am I in? Am I accepted? And very nice woman on the phone. And she was trying to explain in the nicest way possible that the, uh, the Berkeley, uh, sort of the Berkeley regimen was very challenging for any young musician especially somebody who didn't have at least a background or a grounding uh, in music and music theory and et cetera. And she was really recommending that maybe I might want to yeah, go to my local community college and do a, a couple of semesters and just get a grounding before I tried to, uh, you know, take on Berkeley. And I wasn't hearing any of it. I'm like, no, 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 no. I just, one question, am I accepted? You know, and finally, she's like, yes, you're accepted. And I'm like, fine, I'll see you in about eight hours. And, <laughs> and drove up 
and uh, just jumped in, jumped in feet first. Wow. Uh, with no training. Um, I mean, I was self-taught and had played in some pretty interesting bands. I mean, all through high school and everything, I played in this this weird sort of like a theatrical progressive rock band called the Philadelphia Children's Orchestra uh, with John Skip, by the way. And, um, and some of my, some of our, you know, uh, artist, uh, music, musician friends. And we had this crazy band, uh, that was very, uh, it was like, it was like, yes, meets King Crimson meets the tubes, you know, uh, meets the fireside theater. (laughs) And, um, you know, they still talk about it to this day. Uh, some of the people back in New York because we made such an impression. Um, and so I was ready to just kind of jump, jump feet first in and really put, put myself to the challenge. And ultimately I ended up, um, I started Berkeley in 1979 and, uh, I did the four year program in three years. How do you do that without like, uh, I guess there's no sleep involved, right? Yeah, yeah, you just basically eat, breathe, and and sleep it. You know, um, I did four semesters in a row, and then I took one semester off and monitored classes because I still wanted to be in it, but I just didn't want any pressure of homework or, or tests or anything. So um, I took a semester off and still went to school every day, but just you know went to s- sit in and monitor classes that I wanted to see and everything. I was also getting uh, increasingly involved in the uh, in the recording studio at Berkeley and being kind of a session player and hanging out with those guys and just being around. And then um, after a semester of monitoring, I went back and did the back four. And uh, so I did four and then one off and then four. And that was it. Wow. And that's how you do four years and three years. Wow. Um... Yeah. So you're you're so where at what point do you reach uh, New York City? Well, I was in my final semester uh, at the Berkeley College of Music, and one day I uh, was with my my then girlfriend. We were living together, and uh, we were on our way from Boston to Harvard Square on the T. Uh, which is Boston's subway system. Right. And we were going to see a feel-good film festival of The Deer Hunter and Taxi Driver (laughs) at this little movie theater in Harvard Square. And we were standing up in the last car on the Orange Line as it was coming up over the Charles Street Bridge. And I was kind of, we were just kind of spacing out. I was randomly watching the train come up out of the tunnels and then out of nowhere i looked at my girlfriend and apropos of nothing i said what if there was a vampire in the sunlight <laughs> and she just kind of looked at me you know she's a very nice girl but just looked at me and was like uh-huh <laughs> you know and and i was immediately uh, trying to justify this moment of of like nonsensical insanity and I was immediately transposing it from Boston to New York uh, because the New York system, subway system is much bigger and much scarier. Right. And, and I, 
I said, no, really, think about it. Um, if he's a perpetually, if he's a native-born New Yorker, then he's underground, so he's perpetually buried in his native soil. And if it's always nighttime in the subways. Right. And so he can kill 24 hours a day. And so people won't really realize vampire. They'll think subway psycho. Right. And if he's really vicious about it and doesn't just leave two neat little holes in people's necks, but just kind of tears them apart, they really won't think vampire and they really will think subway psycho. And then the last bit was just because this was 1982. uh, I was just looking around and like, and if he's a punk, he'll already look like he's dead and no one will notice the transformation. Right. And so I spelled all this out and my then girlfriend looked at me and was like, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's like, and it's like, okay, you know, I was, I was not, un, it was not unknown for me to just come out of nowhere with weird shit like that. And so, you know, we went to see this feel good film festival. And then the whole ride back, the idea just, it wouldn't leave me alone. Um, I just kept thinking about it, kept thinking about it, had been marinating in the images and the vibe of Deer Hunter and Taxi Driver for like five hours. And I got back to my apartment on Mission Hill in, in Boston and I called up John Skip in, in New York because John had uh, moved to New York City and was a, a young writer trying to make it in the big city. And he had had some success. He had sold a couple of stories to then Twilight Zone magazine. And so I called him up and I'm like, I have this great idea for a short story. And I gave him the basic pitch and I was like, why don't we write it and sell it to Twilight Zone magazine and make a couple hundred bucks and it'll be great. (laughs) Aim high. And yeah. And John's reaction, as I recall, his reaction was, I'm busy. (laughs) And so for the next six months or so, Whenever I would talk to him or go down to New York and see him or, you know, anything, I'd be like, what about the story? What about the story? What about the story? And I think finally I was down there one weekend, you know, and I'm like, what about that story? And he was kind of like, you know, I'm officially sick of you now uh, because you just won't you won't let it go. And he's like, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to borrow. We're going to borrow Leslie's apartment. Uh, a friend of ours had a. Um, a uh, one of those railroad apartments down in the Bowery, you know, with this with the bathtub in the kitchen, kind right. of thing. Um, and we borrowed her apartment, and we came in with a uh, with some sharpies and a stack of uh, three by five file cards, and we started playing a game of asking ourselves two questions over and over again. The first question is what if dot dot dot. The second one was and then what happens? <laughs> and that's and then, how you write a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, that's that's the basic ingredients of that, you know, rinse and repeat. Um, and we just kept doing it. And, you know, it was a fun idea to play with. And by dawn, you know, we had basically every square inch of floor in this little apartment was covered in these file cards. And we pretty quickly came to the realization that we one had way too many ideas to ever fit into a short story 
And two, there at the time there really wasn't a market for a piece of short vampire fiction. Right. However, because of the success of Anne Rice uh, with Vampire Lestat and Stephen King with uh, Salem's Lot, there was kind of a market for vampire novels. And so we started thinking more about maybe this isn't a short story, maybe this is a novel. And I went back up to Boston. I finished. Hey, I finished. Can, I stop, can I stop you there real quick for our listeners? Sure. What would be the difference outside of Googling? What would be the difference of a novel versus a short story? Just that short, a short story is a is lesser amount of words? Uh, well, yeah. A, a short story is under... Uh, is, a short story can be anything from a hundred words to, uh, you know, five thousand words. Yeah, yeah a thousand, five thousand. A novel at the time, uh, in the eighties, a novel was going to be a minimum of fifty thousand words. Right, right, right. right. You know, okay. fifty, sixty thousand words. Yeah. Um, and. So as I'm just kind of going along, you know, finishing up school and everything, one day I came home and I checked my mailbox and there's this big fat envelope in my mailbox and I open it up and it's from Skip. And it was the first draft of the first chapter of The Light at the End. And... I read it and I thought, wow, this is great. You know, um, it's just what all the beats, all the things that we had talked about, they're like right in there and everything. And so, uh, you know, I called him, I told him it was great. And uh, I graduated and in fairly short order, I moved from Boston to New York uh, and moved in. You know, I gave up my, uh, this, you know, unbelievably cool, uh, rental that I'd had for a couple of years where it was the top two floors of a, of a triple decker on top of mission Hill in Boston. Oh, with, my God. you know, with the, with the front windows, the, the, the living room bay windows had a view of Fenway park and it was a finished, uh, attic, you know, with eaves and everything and a sun deck up there and a spiral staircase. So this, great place that I had come in as a roommate and gradually inherited so that I was kind of like the sub landlord of the apartment and different people would come in and rent a room, or, you know, stay for a little while and everything. And, and I, it was great. I had this amazingly cool apartment. Um, and I gave that up and moved to New York to live with, uh, with like six or seven people in a little house in Rigo Park in Queens that was like, you know, John Skip and his girlfriend and, you know, a number of, uh, just a bunch of friends, you know, all, all clustered into this little tiny, you know, I, I gave up that great apartment and got like a 10 by 10 bedroom. Wow. <laughs> in this, uh, you know, very, very cramped house. And you're and like, then, success! Uh, <laughs> Success, you know, big time. And <laughs> spent um, spent the next two years. Uh, I got a job at the same uh, messenger service that John was working at, <clears throat> and I became um, 
I became, I believe, definitely there, but I quite possibly just in general, I became the first roller skating street messenger. What does that mean? Well, you would, it, you, you would go down the street on roller skates like you were Olivia Newton-John <laughs> in Xanadu, and you would give messages messages to like other pe- people would hire you, like a telegram? No, it was more like I would be dressed like a, like a like a character from uh, oh god, a character from uh, oh what is it uh, the Mel Gibson movie? Um, oh god, I'm, I'm, no, not <laughs> no. Braveheart. Yeah, the, the the Jesus movie? No, 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 no. Well, yeah, that's it. I was just, I was like one of these crazed, you know, uh, dystopian figures, you know, um, and uh, I was Mad dressed Max. for cop. Mad Max, exactly. Thank you for solving my brain part. Um, I was dressed like somebody from Mad Max. I mean, I had on, uh, you know, <laughs> knee pads and elbow pads, and uh, that's when I first started wearing fingerless gloves that I became known for, and I basically combat skated. 20 miles a day through midtown Manhattan traffic with like a 20 pound bag slung over one shoulder. And I would go, uh, cell phones were, this was the early eighties. Everybody didn't have a cell phone and the cell phones that did exist were like bricks. Um, but there were pay phones everywhere. And so just, you know, be on the street and call in to the dispatch office and tell them where you are, and then they'd tell you where to go next, you know, and skate over and go in and pick, pick whatever it was up, stuff it in my messenger bag and take it wherever it's going. You know, and, you know, along the way, I, I got like a, uh, I got a daily gig where I would pick up uh, mail going from like 23rd Street down to Wall Street, and it was like a 40-pound mail bag. Uh, wow! That I that I would grab, you know, uh, every day around four o'clock, and that for that I would use the subway. I would skate down, skate down and onto a subway car, and then go off at Wall Street and skate up and go to one of these banking, uh, banking firms and drop it off. <coughs> and that's what I did. Wow, that's amazing! I, but it was this- it was also like you know, rain. Uh, snow, sunshine, heat, everything, you know, all year long. Right. Every kind of weather condition, just, you know, and out in the street with the cabs and the trucks and everything else. And, the, you know, I got hit by a couple of trucks a couple of different times. Oh, my gosh. Um, this sounds like a new a new story. Yeah, it was crazy. But it also, um, <laughs> it also, it was really helpful in the writing of the book. Yeah. Because... Uh, I got to see New York kind of from the gutter up in a very real way. Of, of and at like, this point, you were still writing the book. Yeah, we were writing the book. Yeah. And um, it's it says here that <clears throat> this book actually, can I say the name of the book already? Oh, sure. So, so the book is The Light at the End. And it says that you guys kind of credited are are credited as starting this new movement called Splatterpunk. 
<laughs> yeah, now, sort first of. of all, where did where did the word splatterpunk come from, or is it just just someone in the re reviews made that up and it just stuck? Uh, well, it was made up and it just stuck. But we all kind of, there were a group of us that were uh, once the the light at the end sold, and I started going to uh, we started going to uh, like horror conventions. I'd never been to a horror convention before. Um, and we started going to the horror conventions around the country and started meeting other writers and some of the other writers that I met and we met along the time were, uh, you know, David J. Scow, Clive Barker, Richard Christian Matheson, you know, and so we're meeting these, these people and also reading their work. And just loving their work and also, you know, liking them because, like, these are really great guys. And, and they're just like, uh, you know, it was just fun. We were yeah. all of a sudden part of this, you know, group of young, brash writers who are just all new on the scene, all coming from, you know, radically different angles, you know. Um, but there we were. And one night we were at a convention. And we were all sitting around having drinks. And so the story goes, we were talking about, you know, we were talking about the whole thing that was going on here. And we just noted that uh, whenever anything gets like, you know, big or, you know, the media seizes upon it, um, like cyberpunk was really big at the time. Right. And it seemed like the thing that it would in inevitably end up happening was it would become sort of like blank slash punk. Right. Um, would be the label slap on it. And so we're just all sitting around, you know, having drinks. And, you know, people who play with words for a living, you know, and we're just, you know, blank slash punk. You know, the, it became the game for a while, you know, and somebody would blurt something out. And everybody would be like, nah, you know, and then we just keep talking and chat. And then somebody else would board something else like, nah. And then at a certain point out of nowhere, David Scow turned around and said, splatterpunk. <laughs> and, and we all looked at him and was like, that's it. That's it. <laughs> that is it. That's it. You know, and we all sort of hoisted glasses and cheered. You know, and, but then, you know, we're at the convention and we're guest speakers on different panels, you know, because you guys know how these conventions go. Yeah. And so for the rest of the weekend, whenever we go on a panel, we'd end up talking about Splatterpunk. <laughs> and all of a sudden. It stuck. It, it became a thing. Yeah. You know, because then all of a sudden people it wanted to, um you know, write an article about it. And, you know, it was, it was cheap and easy press, yeah. you know, and it, it was a lot of fun. Although I do recall I had traveled back to, after it had been going for about, I don't know, a year or so of this, you know, and we were getting a lot of buzz and a lot of, you know, a lot of articles written and a lot of, you know, theorizing about the new horror, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was back in New York and I was going out to lunch with uh, our editor, Lou Aronico, one day. 
and we're just walking down the street, you know, going to the restaurant, you know, and I mentioned, you know, asked him if he'd seen the latest article and he sort of sighed, you know, and he's like, yeah, I saw it. And I'm like, what, what's the problem? He's like, you know, I kind of really wish you guys hadn't done that. <laughs> you know, um, and I didn't get it. You know, I'm like, at, at this point, I'm like maybe in my, I'm in my mid twenties, you know, and I'm like, what, you know, this is great. You know, and he's like, I kind of had hoped to do something different, you know, with, with you as a brand, you know, huh. and get you guys out there differently, you know, but this thing is just going to, it's going to kind of stick to you now. And I didn't really understand it at the time. Uh, a few years later, I started realizing what he meant. Um, and... Did that and put, he was did right. That put you in a box you couldn't get out of. It put it put it put us all in a box that was just really hard to ever get out of. Right. Um, and uh, I mean, it was amazing because when it first happened, uh, one of the writers that had been uh, was part of the new horror. Uh, they mentioned Joe Lansdale, and Joe Lansdale was smart enough to know uh, at that point. He's like. I don't want nothing to do with this. It's like, I ain't no splatterpunk. It's like, and that was the right call. That was the smart call. Right. You know, because he was not a splatterpunk. He was Joe Lansdale. Mm -hmm. um, and so for a while, for a couple of years, it was kind of like being in the satanic Mouseketeers. Right. You know, um, I want to see that movie. Yeah. You know, but then it was fun to the point that then it wasn't fun and it started being, you know, it started to chafe because I don't like having, I don't like people putting me in a box. Sure. I don't like, I don't like people trying to build a box around me if I happen to be standing somewhere. Right. Um, but at a certain point, I think, I think I knew the writing was on the wall for me was when I came upon some people at a convention having an argument about what is, and isn't Splatterpunk, um, and they were talking about a story I had written and talking about whether it, it was or wasn't a Splatterpunk story. And at that time, I was thinking, well, hell, if I wrote it and I'm, you know, and I'm one of the creators of Splatterpunk, then, you know, sort of ergo, it must be one, mustn't it? But no. It's like... It had already sort of begun to calcify, right, around its own weird little set of rules, you know. And right around that point, you know, and it was all very, it was all very organic. In that, right around that time, I started kind of moving away from it because wow. the box, because the box was too small. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like this little Frankenstein story of something that was created, and now it's like kind of a monster. Yeah, yeah, and some, and then you know you got to turn it loose, and somewhere the monster's still out there rampaging the countryside. You know, right. it's like, <clears throat> and Splatterpunk went on to uh, have a name of its own. You know, and there are people. You know, I remember years later, like decades later, uh, seeing something with the internet and seeing like some. Japanese skate punks uh, who called themselves splatterpunks who knew absolutely nothing about about, about our work. 
or my work. Nothing. Never heard about it. You know, and there's a whole there's a whole new generation of writers who call themselves splatterpunks, and I don't think uh, I don't know, but I I would guess that probably sixty or seventy percent of them have never read any of what you might consider the canonical works. Right. Um, and when, so when you're submitting the light at the end, um, do you give uh, do you give uh, the entire book? Do you give an idea for the book? How do you present that, and how does it get picked up? Do they call you in and say, "Hey, come to my living room and read me read me the book"? What is that process, and how did it work for you guys? Well, again, for us, it was like it, it was just one of those bizarre things. Um, one of the other things that being a roller skating street messenger did dressed like yeah um, dressed like mad a mad max, max, max a mad max cast off. i just wanted to you know? i want to find the footage on youtube you know yeah you know it was it was um i mean i learned the city you know like i said from the gutter up from the gutter to the penthouse because i was traveling all over the place and learning the city from a very interesting angle and it also became um, uh, the light at the end. Uh, the good guys who are hunting the punk vampire in the subways um, are street messengers. Wow! Because they're they're the only ones who are crazy enough to figure out that the subway psycho is actually a vampire. Right. And also they're networked. You know, because they can talk, you know, because they have a central dispatch office and they talk to each other, you know, they can uh, they can call in and everything. So they can plan and execute a, a, a hunt, you know, through through Greenwich Village to try to, you know, hunt down and destroy the vampire. Um, and he also became uh, he became a character. The roller skating street <laughs> messenger became a, a minor character in the story uh but has a few pivotal moments but then it also helped us ultimately to sell the book right because um because again and and this is a story i've told more than once but but it, i swear to god it's true um i came into the office one day i came rolling into the office one day and uh john was already in there checking out you know, and he showed me he had a photocopy of uh, there was a little uh, zine called FNSF, which was uh, fantasy and science fiction magazine uh, at the time. And it had a little article in there that was about how T.E.D. Klein, Ted Klein, had sold the paperback rights to his collection, The Ceremonies, to Phantom Books for something like one hundred thousand dollars. Um, big deal for him. Big deal for anyone at that time. Yeah. In like nineteen yeah. nineteen eighty, what nineteen eighty four, thereabouts. Um, but all the information was in there, in the article. You know, it was like, what publisher? What editor? <laughs> you know, uh, everything was there, in the in that little article and. We looked at each other, and at the time, you know, we had sent the book out and gotten uh, a number of rejections, ranging from, you know, 
some really nice ones to some that just suck. You know, um, right. But, you know, but no takers. And I looked at John and, you know, we, we read this, uh, this book that comes out every year. Um, it's kind of like the, uh, the writer's guide book mm-hmm. that, uh, that will give you information on all the publishers, all the agencies, all the everything, you know, uh, for writers trying to break into different markets. You know, um, if you looked up, if you looked up Bantam Books at the time, one of the things that it said right up front uh, in the Bantam Books listing was, we do not accept unsolicited manuscripts from unrepresented writers. Right. It's just period. You know, there's no, there's no two ways around this. Um, so right then and there, we're dead in the water, right? right. Um, and I knew my first thought when I saw this thing that, that, uh, we were looking at, uh, from SNFF, you know, I went to town and it's like, huh, well, uh, Lou Aronica likes Ted Klein. Ted Klein likes you. Maybe Lou Aronica will like us. Right. You know, um, except there's this little hurdle of uh, no unsolicited writers, unsolicited manuscripts from unknown, unrepresented talent. We had no agent. Uh, we were nobodies. Um, but John had a recommendation letter from Ted Klein on Twilight Zone Stationery that was just kind of like, I commend to your attention the writing of one John Skip, a young writer of enormous promise and talent, da, da, da. You know, um, and so he had that. And we had also taken the entire story. It was like about a five, 600 page manuscript. And we had boiled it down to about three pages. It was the literary equivalent of a movie trailer. Wow. And so this became the package. Um, and I knew from experience that, uh, you know, from delivering a lot of things to, to publishers at major publishing houses, um, that every morning the mail cart rolls down the hall, you know, down editor's row at the publisher, mm-hmm. uh, publishing house and drop off the mail for that day. And it, there's going to be, you know, five pound manuscripts and assorted different kinds of things. And what is anybody likely to look at first when the mail hits their door that day? They're going to go through the light stuff, you know, just to get it out of their way. So here was the our package, and the package was about three or four pages long in a manila envelope. Um, it was addressed to Lou Aronica. It was at the right address on the right floor. <laughs> you know, of the right publishing house, and it looked official. And one of the things that I knew from experience, or we knew from experience, was that the job of a receptionist at a major publishing house, one of their job functions is to turn away people like me. Right. Of young, course. Young, unknown writers bearing unsolicited manuscripts or anything. 
you know. Um, however, I also knew from experience that one of the other things that is part of the job of a receptionist at a major publishing house is to accept anything a messenger gives you. Hmm. And so it was really like, it was comical <laughs> because at this point, you know, this was, we didn't have computers. We didn't have, you know, this is, uh, we, we were basically, John had a, an old Smith Corona typewriter. I did my notes in longhand, you know, and, and did everything in longhand. We fed it into the one typewriter, you know, um, but yeah, I meet John somewhere in Midtown at a, near a subway entrance and he hands me the package you know, this envelope. And then I wrote it up on my messenger manifest. And then I skated over to then uh, the location, which was 666 Fifth Avenue. And on 666 Fifth Avenue? 666 Fifth Avenue, yeah. I love that. And, um, and I knew exactly what floor to go up to. You know, and I come in, you know, and I, and elevator door opens and here comes me. You know, just like kind of skating, you know, rolling out of the elevator and toward the desk, you know, and all hot and sweaty and, you know, looking, looking like exactly what I was. And, you know, I held out my clipboard, my manifest, and the receptionist looked at me and I'm like, package for Lou Veronica, sign here. And she's like, she looked at me, she's like, I don't know anything about this. And I'm like, I don't know anything about it either. Sign here. Can I use your phone? You know, and she's like, no. And <laughs> just she she signs it, and I'm like, okay. You know, and then I skate away. You know, the rest of this I find out later on what happened. And this is one of these kind of like synchronistic, sort of like things that you know, it, it, the stars align. You know, you make you kind of make your own luck until. You push on enough things until the moment is there, and it's only there for a moment, but it's there, you know. Um, right. And I found out later that uh, I got on the elevator and and skated away. Uh, she did not know what to make of this mysterious package. Hmm. She thought she screwed up, and so she uh, she put it over off to the side, you know. As fate would have it, like five, ten minutes later, Lou Ronica comes out of his office heading to lunch. You know, and he's standing there waiting for the elevator to come up. You know, and he's going to have lunch with another, with a writer. And so he hasn't brought anything to read. You know, and so he's just waiting for the elevators. And she sees him and she's like, oh, uh, Mr. Ronica, you're, a messenger brought this. You're expecting this? Now, Suddenly, Lou thinks he screwed up because right. he has no he has no idea what she's talking about or what this is. Right. But if he has a messenger sending it over, it must be something he's waiting for. And you know, he just the elevator doors are open. He reached over, grabbed it, gets on the elevator, opens it up, you know, and pulls it out. And the first thing he sees is like. A cover letter from Antoine's own letterhead from Ted Klein. You know, and he's like, oh, wow. Huh, interesting. You know, and then he's like, looks at it, and then he starts reading our little, you know, 
uh, our little three-page equivalent of a movie trailer <laughs> for the light of the He's like, wow, wow. You know, um, he, he told us, actually, it almost worked too well because, you know, he was on his way to the restaurant, which was right around the corner, and he, he was kind of looking at it as he was walking, and he almost walked in front of a cab. <laughs> so it's like, you know, so it almost worked too well. But, um, you know, he he went to lunch and then his lunch date canceled out. His lunch date called the restaurant and said something something had happened. He, he wasn't going to be able to make it. And so Lou had nothing to read. But this wow. for lunch. And so he had his lunch, and then he came back to the office, and he sat down, and he knocked out a letter and threw it in that day's outbound mail, and we got a reply the next day. That is crazy. Yeah. And this it was is, like... This is like a movie about it, writing a book. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you, you you almost can't make this shit up because who'd believe it, you know? Um, but it's like he wanted to see sample chapters. Yeah. It's also like a total fucking heart attack because one typewriter. It's like so yeah. you know the the hundred and forty four pages that we need to send him have to be clean typed. Like, immediately. Like yesterday. Like yesterday, you know. And so, John had to sit down and type out the clean, you know, on the on the one thing, I, you know. And we, you know, we got it all done and dropped it off, you know. I sent it off to him. And then, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. Again, we don't know. And... About three or four days later, we get a reply from Luronica saying, uh, this looks great. Send me the rest of the book. Wow. And again, it's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, but it's like now, what, 450 some odd pages have got to be clean typed. Right. On the one Smith Corona. You know, it's just like, oh, my God. You know, uh, it was crazy. You know, um. And, but it ended well. Yes, it ended well. And I know that Stephen's looking at me like, let's get to the bridge. <laughs> not the yeah. bridge. Not the bridge. The abridged, but the bridge. Yeah. I, I'm but sorry. I'm just noticing. That's time. ultimately. That is ultimately how the book got sold. Yeah. I'm just noticing time and I don't want to take advantage of your time. No, um, no, that's okay. Um, but I. Yes. So, so the, but the bottom line is the light at the end goes very well. There was light at the end of that tunnel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Left- it opened up a whole it opened up a whole new thing because I had never thought of being a writer. Uh for me it was just this weird kind of one off. Uh that I just thought was, you know, cool idea, you know. But with that, uh that was also a time during publishing when uh they didn't want a one hit wonder. If they wanted if they wanted a book from you, they wanted several books from you because they wanted to build you know, they wanted to build your rack space and your presence in the bookstore. They wanted to build your career. Right. Um, and so, 
you know, Lou Aronica wanted to buy the light at the end, but he didn't just want the light at the end. He wanted more books. And so when we basically met for the first time, um, we ended up pitching him uh, four more books. Uh, in just like, well, we got this, and we started pitching these things, and, and about uh, five minutes into it, he just he just excused himself. He's like, hold on for just a second. And he leans over, picks up the phone, and, you know, calls his secretary. He's like, could you hold all my calls for the rest of the afternoon? You know, and, and then he's like, no, keep going, keep going. You know, and we just keep telling him. And when it's done, he was like, uh, sounds great. I, I want them all. Um, do you have an agent? At which point I was like, you know, at this point, it's like, I have no shame. You know, and I'm like, no, do you recommend one? <laughs> like, at which point Lou was kind of like, I'm really not supposed to do this, but there, there is one woman that I, I, I love working with, you know, uh, husband and wife agent team, da 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 da. You know, and so we kind of march out of there, go downstairs, and go to the phone bank in the lobby of 666 to call them up. And it's like, hi, my name is Craig Specter, John Skipper, Craig Specter. We have a book right at the end with Little Veronica. He wants to buy it and several other our books. Would you be interested in negotiating the deal and being our agent? And it's kind of like, what are they going to say? No. Right. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Thank you, Craig. We'll get back to part two uh, next week. Um, I forgot to mention that he and, and John wrote uh, Nightmare on Elm Street part five as well. Um, so lot, crossing into Hollywood a little as well. Um, but we'll get more, more from Craig next week. Um, love talking to him. He's such a nice, personable guy. Um, and his music is outstanding. You really should check that out. So if you want to learn more about us, visit www.connorsmithmusicals.com. That's Connor with an E-R. Find us on Facebook under Connor and Smith. Again, Connor with an E-R. Please rate, review, subscribe to this podcast. It really, really helps us out. Also, keep you leaving us those uh, little messages through the Anchor app. We've got another one we're going to share with you on Short Attention Span Sunday. Um, we love getting feedback and little messages from you guys. Uh, and also, I'm going to put that merch link in the, the description again. We are still waiting for ours. I'm hoping it comes tomorrow. This fashion show is long overdue. So at any rate, as we always say, never, never stop, stop questioning. questioning. We'll see you next time. Bye.